At our house, like at a, probably at a lot of ministry houses, we watch some really dorky things on TV sometimes, right? And we watch these, and they're good things, but they're kind of dorky. And we watch this one show called Torchlighters. Anybody ever watch Torchlighters? Right? And so they got these old, they're cartoons of like these people from church history. Um, and I actually kind of like them a lot. Uh, every October, we watch the Martin Luther one. And this week, we sat down, we had about an hour. I think Sarah was gone somewhere and had the kids, and they wanted to watch a Torchlighters. And I said, all right. And we ended up watching one on John Wesley. I don't know if you're familiar with John Wesley, but John Wesley was this Anglican priest, and he founded the Methodist movement. Now, there are things I would disagree with about John Wesley, but what I want to call to your attention today is his early life, his early time as an adult, and his conversion. You see, Wesley tried really hard to be a good Christian. He tried really, really hard, before he was a Christian, to be holy. He attempted to be good enough. He was going to be holy on his own. He wasn't going to drink. He was going to you know, do all these things. He had all these boxes he was going to check, but he always struggled with whether or not he had done enough. Had he read enough Bible passages? Had he been to enough people in prison that week? Had he given enough to the poor that week? Had he done enough to be a good Christian? Until one day, he was sitting in a group of Christians meeting, and a guy was simply reading Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans. And he heard justification by faith alone. He's probably heard it before, but this time it clicked. This time he had eyes to see, and he found himself, as he said, strangely warmed. Most people believe he found himself converted, not because he had done enough things that week, but because he believed the gospel. Interestingly, it's the same thing that Luther, the guy that wrote that preface, had dealt with years, decades earlier. He had wrestled with, had he been good enough for God, he would do all the things that a good medieval Roman Catholic man would do. He would go to say confession, and then on his way back to his room, he would think of things he hadn't confessed and go back and aggravated his confessor to the point where the guy said, go away and do a really good sin before you come back. He would lay out in the cold. He would freeze himself. He would beat himself with whips, trying to be sorry for his sin. He even said if anyone was to make it to heaven through monkery, if a monk was to make it through heaven through monkery, it would have been me. But it wasn't enough. He needed Christ. Like another man in church history said before coming to Christ, his efforts were merely like putting a coat of paint on a rotting building. The paint was not going to be enough. The building needed to be changed. A new heart was needed. Some of you may come in here this morning and you hear a convicting sermon. Maybe you're convicted by something outside of this building. Maybe you hear a sermon on the radio. Maybe you read a passage that convicts you. And rather than turning to Christ, what do you do? I'm going to try really hard not to cuss this week. I'm going to tithe more. I'm going to stop watching pornography. I'm going to do these little things so that God will be happier with me. But friends, from today's passage, you will hear that you will never find peace until you trust in Christ, until your heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. You can never earn favor with God. You need Jesus. Turn with me to Philippians 3. Philippians 3.
We'll start in verse 1 so that we have the context of what we read last week. And then we'll pick up in verse 4 where we left off. Philippians 3, verse 1. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But I have, but everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be lost because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truth on our hearts this morning. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your inerrant, perfect word that we might know you and know how to live lives, that we might know the gospel, that we might know Christ. God, I pray in the next few minutes that you would guard my tongue and guard these people's ears, that only your truth would be found in their hearts as they leave this place. And if I say anything that is unprofitable or unfaithful, it would fall away and be forgotten. God, I pray for all of us here that you would give eyes to see. Some of us a reminder of the gospel and where our righteousness comes from and where our hope lies. And for others who hear my voice who have never trusted Christ, that you would be gracious, that you would call them to yourself, and that they would believe the gospel today. God, all of this brings glory to you. We pray that you would be glorified among us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, knowing Christ is better. Knowing Jesus is better. Knowing Christ means that your righteousness is from God. Knowing Christ means that knowing the power of his resurrection and knowing Christ means sharing in his sufferings. All three of these are better than attempting to keep the law. Last week we saw how God sovereignly worked in history to bring about his purposes. We looked at each one of these covenants and how they progressed to the new covenant. How God was gracious in the garden when he could have wiped out all of humanity, all of the world, right then and there in Genesis 3. He promises a redeemer. 
and how He worked through each covenant until the fullness of time, when God would send forth His Son, born of a woman, born under a law, that He might redeem those who live under the law, and that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, of God the Father. God sent His Son at the appointed time to usher in the new covenant, And we see that this covenant is a covenant unlike any covenant that had been before. A new covenant. A covenant of peace. A covenant that made the old covenant obsolete. A covenant where God would sovereignly replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. Where He would call men and women to Himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. And one man who would sovereignly be apprehended by God for service and for suffering, was the writer of this letter, Paul. As the kids got correctly, Paul's on his way to persecute more Christians. He's on his way to persecute, as Christ says, he himself. And what happens? He's knocked off his horse. He's blinded. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he's taken to the city. And when he is there, he is baptized by Ananias, and and, and God tells Ananias, go to Paul, this guy that's been persecuting us, and I will tell him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. But God did not save Paul for anything that Paul had done. He didn't save Paul because he said, this is a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and I'm going to want this one. He saved Paul according to his great mercy and for his will. And friends, knowing Christ... Knowing Jesus means that your righteousness is from God. The Judaizers that we saw last week, the Judaizers, they look to their own righteousness for justification. They look to what they do for justification. They look to their ability to keep the law. It's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus dietary laws. Look what Paul says in verses 4-8. through He says, Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews regarding the law, a Pharisee regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be lost because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may be found in Christ. Paul says to his Judaizers, man, you think you're a big shot? You think that you're going to earn God's salvation? Hey, man, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I got every square on the Hebrew bingo card checked. I've got everything. I am the OG. I am the original gangster of Jews. And I say, it's all dung. All of my effort, all of my self-righteousness is dung. While the Judaizers put their confidence in the flesh and their ability to hold up the Old Testament law, Paul shows, I have more reason to put confidence in the flesh than you do, but I do not. My hope is in Christ. My hope is in Jesus. Everything I do is nothing compared to Jesus. Now, most of you in here, I would gather, I would suspect, do not come in here today thinking, all right, it's Jesus plus circumcision that's saving me. Most of you don't walk in here today and say, all right, I'm not going to have bacon anymore plus Jesus, and I'm going to look to my own stuff. 
But how many of you look to meritorious works to save you? To be in right standing with God so that God would have favor on you. I'm not talking about obedience, and we're going to talk about that in a bit. I'm talking about meritorious works. Before I came to faith, I was saved at 30. In my own life, I started to be convicted of sin, and I was like Wesley. I was like Luther. I was like John Bunyan, and I was going to do some things. I was going to do some things so that God would be more happy with me. This sounds silly now, and it probably sounds silly to you as well as it should, but I decided I'm not going to go out with the guys to the bars three nights a week as I normally do. I'm going to go out one night a week. That was my decision as a young sergeant in the army. I'm only going out one night a week, and more than that, I'm going to start doing healthy things that God would be pleased with. I'm going to start taking up, I took up cross-country skiing, and I went to the bookstore, and I started reading books because that's healthy, and that's what a guy should do. And you know what? I'm going to go to church two times a month. That was my goal. Not every Sunday which even just going every Sunday wouldn't have been enough, but I was going to go twice a month, at least twice a month. That would show that I was a good Christian and I was committed to Jesus. It was my efforts, my works, my hoping to find favor in God, but that is not what saves us. What saves us is knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. And what does it mean to know Christ? Just saying, all right, Jesus exists. I know that Christ exists. Is that enough? Well, to know what it means to know Christ, we must understand what it means for God to know us. God knows his people in a special way. We read in the Old Testament where God says to the nation Israel, only you have I known among all the nations of the world. That doesn't mean that God only knows about this one group of people and there's people in Mongolia or in Russia or in South America he doesn't really know about. What he's saying is, I know you in a special way that I don't know others. God knows the church, the circumcision we saw last week. He knows his people in a special way. He foreknew his people before the foundation of the world. He foreloved his people before the foundation of the world. And when Paul says to know Christ, it is an intimate expression, one of, of, of love. It conveys warmth. It conveys a direct relationship with God the Son. It is more than mere head knowledge to know Christ. And Paul says that we cannot earn this knowing that this knowing is a gift of God. We see that throughout Paul's writings. We cannot be good enough to earn Christ's love. We cannot do certain things to earn Christ's love, but that gift of knowing Christ is a gift from him. And we cannot be good enough to earn our righteousness either because all of our meritorious works fall short. Paul says, you can't be good enough. It's by faith. Look with me at verse 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness. Let me go back to verse 8. So he says he considers all things to be loss and is dung. And then he says, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. 
Paul says that he rejects all of his own meritorious works. He rejects all of that Hebrew of Hebrew stuff that he talks about. And his righteousness is not from the law, but is from faith in Jesus Christ. True righteousness. True righteousness, friends, cannot be acquired by our effort. It must be a gift of God. Our righteousness is a gift of God through Christ. A doctrine that the church is called imputed righteousness. Our justification, our right standing with God can only be found in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to the believer at the moment of conversion. Some have called this the great exchange, right? That, that where Christ takes my sin on himself and then he gives me his righteousness, so that when the Father looks upon Alan McElroy, he sees not Alan McElroy's sin, that's been taken away by Christ, and he doesn't see Alan McElroy's filthy works, but he sees Christ's righteousness, Christ's perfect righteousness. It is imputed to the believer at the moment of conversion. He became a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. He who knew no sin became sin that we might know righteousness. In the sacrifice of Christ, we find forgiveness of sin, the active obedience of Christ that he merited, his righteousness is given to us. We are in union with Christ. He is in us, and we are in him. That's what Paul writes, in Christ. In Christ. I am in Christ. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. We have been given the righteousness he earns. We are constituted heirs, we are constituted children of God because of what he has done, not because of our meritorious works. Friends, you are justified by faith and faith alone apart from works. This is not of your doing, but it is the grace of God. Even your faith is a gift from God. It is nothing that you can conjure up on your own. To know Christ, to know Jesus Christ, is to have his righteousness gifted to you, and is to know his resurrection. Knowing Christ, friends, second, means knowing the power of the resurrection. Look with me at the first part of verse 10. My goal is to know him, to know Christ. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. So what does Paul mean by the power of Christ's resurrection? Friends, Jesus Christ was completely dead, crucified. His humanity nailed to a cross, dead in a cold tomb. And on the third day, his human body began to breathe. And he walked out of that tomb. Not just a spiritual resurrection. Not just his spirit was rose but bodily resurrection, walked out of that tomb. His disciples felt his hands, felt his side. He ate fish with them on the beach. Still truly God, still truly man, the power of Christ's resurrection is victory over death. That's what we looked at in Easter out of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. We see that Christ is the first fruit and the church is the full harvest. 
Because one day all who are dead in Christ will rise, have resurrected bodies that come forth from the grave. And we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ did not rise from the dead, if he did not walk out of that tomb alive, we have no hope. It's all for nothing. If he didn't rise from the grave, the death of Christ atoned for our sin, the resurrection destroyed death for the believer forever. It is Christ conquering death. Owen Strand, my theology teacher, said victory is realized in the cross and it is affirmed in the resurrection. Without the resurrection, without the power of the resurrection, we have no hope. But Christ did rise. He is alive today, and all those who are in Christ will experience resurrection as well. Paul wants to know the power of this resurrection. He wants to know the power of this victory over death, and he also wants to suffer as his Lord suffered. Third, knowing Christ means sharing in his sufferings. Look at verse 10 through 11. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Friends, just as Christ suffered, Paul suffers. Paul suffered. He's been beaten. He's been jailed. He's been shipwrecked. When Ananias goes to Paul, what does God say? Paul, God tells Ananias, that he would show Paul how much he must suffer for God's name, Acts 9.16. And the Philippians have seen this with their own eyes. Remember back to where we looked at where the church was founded. Paul is beaten. He's thrown in jail, right? The shackles are broken uh, and while he's in jail. The Philippian jailer is converted, and then the people ask him to leave the town. You remember all of that, that story? They saw all this with their own eyes. And even now, Paul's in jail. Paul's in prison. Like, I don't think jail is fun any time. Like, I don't think it's fun today. But I know they didn't have color TVs back then. I know you didn't get three hots in a cot. I know they weren't climate controlled. Like, I, when he was in Rome at one point, in the maritime prison, it basically used to be a cistern that they don't use anymore, and you have to drop you through a hole and, and chain you to a wall. And he's in jail right now suffering and the Philippian church sends Epaphroditus to Paul to comfort him. Paul knows suffering, and he says he wants to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering. You might say, all right, I get the first two, right? Like, I, I, I get that, like, having Christ's righteousness imputed to me rather than trying to earn it, that's better. I get knowing the power of resurrection and the death, it, that's better. But suffering? How is that better? Friends, I would say to you that what Paul knows is that any suffering you experience with Christ, being in Christ, is better than not knowing him. And I would say it's far better than the alternative. To be a Christian is to suffer. We are one of the few generations of Christians that think that we should get our cake and eat it too. We are one of the few generations of Christians that think I should have a cush lifestyle, not oppose all the things I want, an early retirement and a second home and not be opposed. 
Sometimes we hold to a Christianity that our older brothers and sisters would find very foreign because they knew what it meant to suffer. And they knew that their Lord suffered. And they understood that Christianity is a pattern of suffering. To know Christ is to share in his sufferings. Today, as we think about this passage, I just want to lay before you three things that we need to understand if we know Christ. Three things that we need to understand if we know Christ. First, if you know Christ, understand that on judgment day, you will cling to Christ's righteousness, not your own. You will cling to Christ's righteousness, not your own. No one will stand before God on that day, capital D day, the judgment day. No one will stand before God and talk about how long they served at FBC fill in the blank. No one's going to stand there and say, I taught VBS every single year and I always led the choreographed dance stuff. No one's going to stand up there and say, but look at how many sermons I preached. Look at this number of people that I baptized or that I led to the Lord. No one will say any of those things. The only thing we will do is cling to the fact that we are in Christ in his perfect work. That's all we have at the end of the day. All we have is Jesus. Every single one of us here that are in Christ are nothing more than beggars that have been given bread. Every single one of us were dead in sin and were raised to life by a power that is not within us. That's all we have, is the grace of God. You say, well, you don't know how big a deal I am or have been in other churches. It doesn't matter. You're nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my heroes of the faith, read his two two-volume biography. I, I, I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was used greatly by God in the early 20th century, preached in London through the war, through World War II. And I still have many books of his on the shelf. And when he died, he was talking to the man that would preach his funeral. And I love this. It's a sweet sentence. The man who preached his funeral tells a story. He said that he was getting ready to leave. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said, no, 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 come back here, my boy. I want you to know one thing. I am nothing but a sinner saved by grace. Don't get into that pulpit and talk about all the great things I have done. Talk about my Lord. Any righteousness that you or I have is from Christ and Christ alone. Second, if you know Christ, understand that you will experience suffering. Don't think it's strange. Don't think it's something weird. You will experience suffering. Christ called his followers to take up their cross and follow him. Take up your cross. A cross is not a fun thing. It's an instrument of suffering. It's an instrument of death. Take up your cross and follow me. Paul says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. You and I must know that we will suffer. We must expect suffering and not think it's strange when the fiery trial comes upon us. If you live a cushy life of luxury and are never opposed, if no one challenges you because of your faith, 
if you do not feel a tension when you are among your unbelieving friends, I would argue you should feel uncomfortable right now. If your highest goal in life is to live a cush American dream lifestyle, you should feel uncomfortable if that's what you are getting. Something is wrong. But you say, we don't want to be confrontational people as Christians. That won't help us win folks to the Lord. Well, to you, I want to say, brother, sister, I am so grateful for your heart. I am glad that you desire to be a peacemaker. I think that is admirable. But you must ensure that your peacemaking is not just for your comfort, and not just because you want to be liked, and not just because you want to be an important person in the community. Because Christ was one of the most controversial figures that we see in his day. On the other ditch, on the other side, some of you may desire to use the doctrine of suffering to your advantage, and you, you pick fights that are unneeded. You, you, you get mad at people that annoy you or that they don't fit your political agenda. Friends, I would say we are to suffer, but the Bible also says we are not to suffer as an evildoer. In other words, if we run around with a chip on our shoulder and we pick fights with unbelievers, we are suffering not because of Christ, but because we have been a jerk. There is enough suffering in biblical Christianity, we don't have to try and add to it. Christian, do you desire to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings? Third, if you know Christ, understand that while you can do nothing to earn or to add to Christ's righteousness, Knowing Christ means submitting to his lordship and rendering obedience to your king. Right? I want to, I want to be clear here. Effort to earn favor with God and effort to serve Christ faithfully are not the same thing. Effort to earn favor with God and be found righteousness based upon what I do an effort to be faithful to the king who died for me and to obey his commands are not the same thing. One is prideful. The other is humble. One effort says, look at me. Look at what I've done. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was baptized here. I have served in every VBS. I have done all the things. And the other one says, Christ died for me, let me be holy. Christ died for me, I find him altogether lovely, much more lovely than clicking on that late at night. Christ is what I find lovely. I find it much more lovely than cheating on my tax return. There is a difference in obedience and meritorious works. Thielman, a commentator on this passage, says this, quote, Paul is concerned that God will keep, Paul is certain that God will keep both him and his congregations faithful to their calling and conduct them safely through to the final judgment. But he is consistently 
He consistently refuses to relax his own efforts to be faithful to God's call and frequently admonishes his congregations not to presume upon God's mercy. Friends, in a biblical sense, to know Christ is to desire to be obedient to him. To know Christ is not just feeling his presence, but also living faithfully day to day, week to week, month to month, repenting of sin, turning back to Christ, and seeking to live an obedient life. A true Christian desires to please the one who died for him. Our salvation is of the Lord. Our faith is in Christ alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. It is always accompanied by a heart that desires to be obedient. Knowing Christ is better. Knowing Christ means our righteousness is from God. Knowing Christ means knowing the power of his resurrection and sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Any attempt to add to Christ's completed work is legalism. It's not Jesus plus. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. It's not Jesus plus not having tattoos. It's not Jesus plus not drinking. It's not Jesus plus confessing to the priest. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. Any elevation of your religious acts is idolatry. And any requirements that you add to the gospel denies the gospel. It is a rejection of the gospel. I have one more point of application. And that is to the nominal Christian. This last point of application comes to those that is Christian in name only. The no-fruit Christian, the almost Christian, as George Whitfield would call you. Understand that you cannot be at peace with God, and you cannot know the power of the resurrection, and you cannot know his sufferings until you submit to him. Because to be an almost Christian is no Christian at all. To be a nominal Christian is no Christian at all. The question this morning is, have you truly believed? Do you know my Christ? Do you know the Jesus of this passage? I once heard the story of a person who claimed to be converted at childhood. And she said it was at a, at a camp or something, and everybody came forward and, and knelt in the altar and prayed. And so she went with them, and she was converted at a very, very young age. And she was telling someone later on that she wasn't sure if she was actually converted because she can't even remember what she said or that, what she believed. And this older person in the church said, well, my dear, you may not have known what you were saying, but I guarantee you believed it. No. Unequivocally, no. You cannot believe what you do not understand, and you cannot believe what you do not know. Friend, do you know and do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning? To know Christ, God must open your eyes and draw you to himself and grant you the repentance you need. Repentance is turning from sin and self. To know Christ is to turn from your sin, to turn from pleasing yourself and turn to Christ. To know Christ is to believe the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that all of us are born dead in sin. From Genesis 3, the entire world is corrupted by sin. That's why we have sickness. That's why we have disease. That's why we have murders. All of us were born dead in sin. All of us were fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God in his great mercy, knowing that we could not keep the law, we had no ability to justify ourselves, sent forth his Son, God the Son, always eternally existent, 
eternal both ends of the timeline. There is never a time in which he did not exist, and he became man, born of a woman, truly man, still truly God, retaining all of his deity. And he walked this earth, and he lived underneath the law perfectly, perfect, obedient, everything that we cannot do, perfect under the law. And then he was crucified in our place as our substitute. We had a spot destined to take the wrath of God on that cross for all eternity. And he said, I will die in his place, in her place. Being fully God, he could live a perfect life. And being fully man, he could truly be a substitute for us. God couldn't crucify an angel in your stead because you are man. And he died on that cross in the place of his people in those who would believe in him, was truly dead, humanly, and put in a tomb. And after the third day, on the third day, walked out of that tomb alive, still fully God, still fully man. And he ascended, fully God and fully man, to the Father's right hand, where he currently waits to come back for his bride. And all those who confess their sin, who turn from themselves, who truly believe that story, those truths. Friends, that is what it means to know Christ. Do you know him? Have you believed that gospel? If not, you must repent today and believe the gospel. And if you want to know more about what that means, grab me, grab one of the elders after this, because we want to talk to you. You are the most important person on our calendar.